Okay. This is Law, Litigation, and Lies, and I'm Jim Prangy. My guest today is Kurt Johnson, the longtime bar owner restaurateur from Jamestown, New York, which uh, for you folks who would like to know, that's about 60 miles from Erie and about 70 miles from Buffalo, New York. Um, Kurt is also taking on the task of adding podcasting to his repertoire, and we're going to get into that. I'll be very curious to hear but first of all, I wanted to ask Kurt if he could whip up the uh, upside down meatloaf for me yet tonight. <laughs> and if that was at all a trend as to how the last year of restaurant business has been in the era of COVID. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's exactly it. The upside down <laughs> meatloaf. Now, yeah, I'm not the chef here. You know what I mean? I don't bartend. I, I'm basically a carpenter that liked to drink and build a bar because he liked to drink and build. So, right. But anyway, yeah, it, things have been the, the upside down meatloaf is exactly what it is. It's an upside down meatloaf with the, the potatoes on the bottom and the meatloaf on top. It's just flipping it. And it's a it's a fan favorite here when when we are open. Um, we've, right. we've been closed since last June to the public. We've been closed to the public for a year. We did take out until June, but really? it just... You could just see it. it. It wouldn't make ends meet. Wow. Is that part of the New York State situation per se? Yeah. Yep. It's all the lockdown. And then, you know, with the not being able to open, we were more of a nightclub, you know, restaurant and bar. And um, the money's really selling the alcohol. It's hard to make money on food in this business. And uh, it's kind of too expensive to make money. I hate to say it that way, but even without COVID, it's a, it's a challenge to, to make ends meet. Right. And uh, so that's where we're at. So let me ask you, when did you, when did you officially shut down again? So it was March 13th, St. Patrick's Day was the last night I had a live entertainment. We had the porcelain bus drivers. <laughs> And they've been, they've been playing here since they were like 21. I mean, they've been here, play, they were one of my first bands back in 1996. Wow. I and mean, they were just a bunch of high school, you know, just got out of college, I think, and started playing in a band. It was a 10-piece band. Right. But uh, that was the last night we were open to the public. And then we did the Paycheck Protection Program that lasted three months. And um, by the time June came, you could just see it was too expensive to make money that, you know, we were just doing takeout food and we were never designed to be a takeout restaurant. So right. we had to have extra employees in the kitchen because there's a lot more, you know, challenges. And then we had to actually use the front window of the building, which is probably a hundred feet away from the kitchen mm -hmm. to hand the food out at curbside. So yeah, it was quite a transition. And it's just like I said, it's difficult to make money on food and, and without the, the alcohol and the socializing. It, it, we, we knew we had to shut the doors. Now, when you could open to the public, it was 50% occupancy and they had to be eating while they were drinking. So, you know, you just knew with everything, it just wasn't wise to, to try to force yourself to, to make right. things happen. I'd rather play to win than to play not to lose. You know what I mean? Sure. Were you able to take uh, advantage of the second PPP program that came out earlier this year? 
Yeah. And um, I didn't realize how quick that I was going to get funded. I thought that, you know, you got six months to use it and we got approved for it a month ago. So we're reorganizing and we should be open. I'm thinking in May and that'll give us another four months to really try to right our ship and make sure that we can make it, but we can test the waters this way without losing everything, you know? Right. Now you're familiar. There's a term that's recently been out there, certainly here where I am, it's called the shuttered venue program where they are right. supposedly working on another program that can be beneficial to you. Yeah. Now with that one, it's, it's a lot more of fixed seating and more of, um, it would be more uh, for like theaters and bigger places from what I'm understanding. Right. And there's another restaurant package, the name slipping me that they're coming out with um, <coughs> that would wind up being more beneficial. It would go through 2023, I think. Right. And it would be similar to the paycheck protection, but you would subtract the two paycheck protection programs from this uh, rescue right. restaurant package. I, it's something like that. Yep. That's what I've and, heard too. And that one will actually, I, I believe from what I'm saying would work more beneficial for me because I didn't have the, you know, if I was doing 10 or $20 million a year in sales, I think the shutter would have been the one, but we were more, our sales weren't quite anywhere near that. Right. You know? Sure. No, I understand. Just a curiosity, how many people, when you are open, can you seat? Um, like for dining? Yes. Um, our dining room's small. It's probably 50 people and the bar area is bigger. We do serve food out at the bar, but it was never really, they were kind of designed to be two separate places. Right. Okay. So in the, the bar area is larger, but we, you know, we can adjust and remodel. So when we do open, we'll probably be stretching the seating area into the bar area. Right. So let's go back in time a little bit, Kurt. We'll come back to where we just are. Let's go back in time. You're, you're, you're a kid in Jamestown growing up. True? Oh, yeah. And you had interests like everybody, some of which were sports. But how is it that you all of a sudden took it upon yourself to want to become a union carpenter? Um, well, the story actually began when I was 18. I took auto mechanics in high school and enjoyed that. And uh, when I turned 18, a friend and I thought we knew everything. So we went for a motorcycle ride for about a year and a half. I was out, wound up in Dallas, Texas. And when I came back from... Uh, <laughs> Texas, uh, it just happened a friend of mine needed help on a construction job and put a hammer in my hand and I started building and went from a non-union company, had an opportunity to go union after three years, got in as a journeyman and uh, kept working away. I built everything from houses to bridges to uh, you name it. And uh, and I just like to drink and I like to build. I was 29 years old. So I figured I'd put my two trades together and I build a bar called Shaw Bucks. <laughs> and you were, and you were single at that time when you opened yeah. the bar, right? Yeah. So a 29 year old guy opening up a bar. Sounds kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. And did you work in the bar quite a bit in the early days? 
You know, to be honest with you, um, I had never bartended before. You know, I, I ran construction jobs a lot of times. So I just kind of took the principle of, you know, bidding what it costs to build a, a mixed drink to what it costs to build a, a bar or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. So I kind of, I tried bartending a couple of times and I, I gave more away than I charged. <laughs> I realized that if I paid someone to do it, it would probably be better off. And if I was there every day bartending. I don't, I think I would drink every day and be a total alcoholic. So I kind of hired professional people that knew what they were doing behind the bar and, right. and trusted them. And, and I just uh, mainly took care of the other things. And uh, it was crazy. The Shawbucks almost didn't happen because two weeks after I signed my lease <coughs> to build it with DJDC, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. Ooh. So I had to give Dr. Walter my left nut. And then it wound up, I had to go through uh, chemotherapy because it had spread into my lymph nodes. Whoa. Were there some tenuous times there? Yeah. And, you know, my mom, it was only two weeks after. So, I mean, my mom was like, you know, this is a sign maybe God doesn't want you to build a bar and, you know, and maybe you shouldn't do it. And everyone else was like, cause I never owned a bar before. So they're like, you know, maybe it's, maybe you should just do that and focus on being sick with cancer. And my thought was, you know, if, if, and it is a more curable cancer, it wasn't, you know, it was life-threatening if I didn't do anything, right. but the cure rate for testicular cancers pretty high, but you have to go through chemo, lose your hair in the, you know, whole nine yards. But my attitude was I always wanted to build something, build a business. And um, I built it not for the money, more for the free time. You know what I mean? Because I saw the other bar owners having their time. And, and so I just figured if this was the last thing I did, it's something I wanted to do. Right. I already committed to the lease, I'm going to build it and it'll just be a distraction you know, while I'm getting chemo. So every, normally they would go four to five weeks in between one week long chemo treatments, but I was young and they knew I wanted to start a business. So I would go every, around every three weeks in between treatments. So I'd, I'd get treated, be sick for a week, and then I'd work for two weeks on the bar. And then I'd wind up going back to Roswell Park to get my chemo for a week. So but fortunately, it, it did keep me busy. It gave me a purpose, uh, you know, so I just wasn't surrounded with, uh, I felt I still had a purpose. I was working on a business and right. somehow you just manage, you know. So your attitude was pretty strong during the period of time with the health issues that you had to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, because you were, like you said, Kurt, you're looking forward, you're building and you, you've got yeah. a optimistic outlook. And that, that, of course, is great. You know, and I don't know, you, well, honestly, what uh, prepared me for that was the experience I had at the age of 20. Um, but that's that's a whole nother long story. I don't know if you want to get into all that. but Well, you could touch on it briefly, just to kind of share. Well, it was, it was kind of like uh, the, the story, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So right. I'm down in Texas. I'm all on my own. My buddy wound up getting hurt in a factory, moved back. I was tinting car windows and uh, I wound up opening my own business, tinting car windows. And just a, so many coincidences and things worked out where um, 
when we were thinking about starting our own window tinting business, me and a, a couple other guys that were working for Spectrum Auto Tint, I just happened to tint the windows of uh, this guy that was going to get the windows tinted in the car. His name was Wet Howard. And um, he was retired, older guy. I, he had something with his legs. He was crippled. Not So tinting his windows, it, he asked me, you know, what I was doing. I came down on a motorcycle and um, I told him I was going to start my own business. He was impressed that I came down. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to tint windows the rest of your life or what do you want to do with your life? You're only, I was probably 18, no, 19 at the time, I think. And uh, I told him I wanted to open uh, my own window tinting business and advanced auto tint. And he said, oh, that's great. I was in the advertisement, whatnot. He said, you wouldn't remember me, but my name's Wet Howard. I was one of the first Marlboro men back in the late forties. And I had my own radio show called Melody Magazine in, in Chicago, right near where you're at. Mm -hmm. And he was also the announcer for the Ed Sullivan show. Wow. So he offered to help me, thought it was a great idea. And he said, I can teach you the principles of advertising, you know? Mm -hmm. So he taught me the basics and whatnot. And uh, so I did wind up getting my own window tinting business. And I only had a motorcycle, so I would, you know, but I could drive that to the dealerships, get a car and come back. And I partnered with my roommate, Galen. So um, that business was going well. And, and uh, there's so many things that added up to this event that caused me to have the one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But um, we were experimenting with ecstasy a little bit, which is, not a total hallucinogenic, but it, it does have those effects. And I, I just uh, had an experience with it where I got a little too high with it and I went a number of days without sleeping. And prior to that, some of the events at the business were going really well. Like we tinted the windows of uh, the guy that wrote the, uh, he was in advertising too. And he had called on the phone, wanted to see the owner. And after his car was done, he wanted to see the owner. And I went out and talked with him. And he said, uh, you're the owner. You're, you're kind of young. And I told him my age. He asked who did the ads. And Wet Howard didn't do the ad, but he told me how to do it. So he said, I researched the Dallas Times-Herald, the, uh, the telephone book directory, which we don't have yellow pages anymore, really. But, you know. And I talked to you on the phone. You told me what you're going to do now. I'm here to pick up my car and it's exactly what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So the next thing, I know I'm getting into a long story. I apologize, but. No, no, it's okay because it's, it's a part of you. It's what you experienced. Yeah. And um, so that he says that uh, he was in advertising and he was actually, he said he had an office in New York city, one in Fort Worth, Texas, or one in California. He was one of the, the, the head guys that did the Rolaid commercial, how do you spell relief? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, your ads, this, he goes, you don't have to go to college if you want to get into advertising. He kind of somewhat said, if this doesn't work out for you, you know what I mean? There could be a job. Right. So I was on a little high and, and did the ecstasy and wound up not sleeping for three or four days. I needed help, but I didn't get the help I wanted. So it was basically like one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, I went to North Parkland Hospital. Next thing I know, uh, I wound up in the state hospital. And then 
by the time my parents could get down there, I was incarcerated for, and I was nonviolent, nothing. It was just the way the system works. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was probably five weeks before my parents could make arrangements. My dad was still working as a physical therapist here at WCA hospital and make his way down to, to rescue me basically. And I was committed to 90 days and it was basically a pharmaceutical concentration camp. And I went from 165 pounds to 111 pounds within five weeks. And at that time they didn't know anything about ecstasy. So they thought I had brain damage or I did took a bad drug and that was their analysis. And so they eventually let me get out to come back to Jamestown and um, my, uh, they, I was supposed to go to a state hospital in New York and I had to fly home with my mom and my dad took my belongings and my mom's deaf and I'm kooky. You know what I mean? I'm, right. I was only awake 20 out of 24 hours a day. I'd lost, you know, I had no idea what was going on. I was so drugged. Right. It took me 20 minutes to walk like 20 feet. You know, it was just a zombie. Yeah. You were taking multiple prescriptions. Yeah, I was I was on a lot more drugs than they admitted to, but it was Thorazine mainly and uh, lithium. Lithium, <clears throat> yes. And um, and so when I got back to town, they took me to Jones Hill, which was uh, in the hospital. It wasn't a state hospital, but it was a local one. And when they later on, I learned that I was on six different medications, but they only admitted to two. Mm-hmm. And then my uh, uh, and basically <clears throat> they told my parents that I probably had brain damage and that I would have to live the rest of my life in a mental institution. Oh yeah. And my parents tried me at home and I wound up back at Jones Hill and they did do the electrical shock treatment. Mm-hmm. And somehow that had some success. I did two rounds and was able to go home. But six months later, I was still on a high dose of Thorazine, you know, cause they couldn't take you right off. It was like, in the beginning, I was on like 1600 or 1800 milligrams, which is huge. And I think by six months later, I might have been down to 1200 milligrams, which is still a lot to affect your mind. But I read at a third grade reading level, and my IQ is below 70 when they tested me six months later. Wow. So uh, it wasn't until probably almost a full year, one of my best friends, Jimmy Ross, who had um, been there just telling me repeatedly, this isn't you, don't believe him, get off these meds. This isn't right. Um, He had just gotten out of the Marines a year before. And he was always there for me at my house, even visiting me when I was in Jones Hill, when a lot of my other friends were embarrassed to, you know, Kurt Mm -hmm. lost his mind, you know, let's write him off now and not be embarrassed with him. Jimmy was there. And uh, he got diagnosed with uh, leukemia and died within six weeks of his diagnosis. And I just literally said, uh, <laughs> sorry, I quit taking my meds, you yeah. know? And, and my dad said, if you quit taking your meds, I'll just take you to the insane asylum and leave you, you know? But I figured I would either die and be with Jimmy, or I was going to live a normal life, but I wasn't suicidal. Right. But that, that was my choice point, you know, that's the name of my podcast, but 
I, I literally didn't tell anyone for three or four months. And next thing you know, a buddy of mine needed help on a construction job and I was able to function. And, and uh, maybe three weeks after he, I had quit taking the meds, I was just laboring on a job. And once I got a hammer in my hand, I started reading blueprints and uh, probably six months later, I told four months later, I told my counselor, you know, that he was impressed on how well I was doing. And I finally admitted to him, he goes, good. I knew this would happen. Eventually I didn't know it would happen so quick. And I'm glad that you, you know, you were on enough dose that it could have killed you quitting cold Turkey, you know? Was there a time that the doctors say to you that there's every bit of chance that you were going to be taking that medication for the rest of your life? Back then. Yeah. And, and what they diagnosed it with, and it wasn't until later on that I, I learned more about it, but they said I had a chemical imbalance that was caused, you know what I mean? I, by taking ecstasy and that we got to balance these chemicals. So you're probably going to have to take this drug the rest of your, you know, they said I would always, and more than likely I would have to be, even a year later, they were not a year later, but at the six month point, they were still telling my parents at some point he's going to, probably wind up in a mental institution and that's where your son's going to live the rest of his life. Yeah. They wanted to put you on the psychologist's annuity program where <laughs> you're, you're continuing to purchase the product. Uh, let's just say I've had experience with a family member that has had a path with the uh, analysis by the doctor with the lifelong plan. And he reached a point like yourself and said enough of this crap. And yeah. it sounds as though your, your good friend, Jimmy, the unfortunate that happened to him really helped you break through. It did. And, and eventually, I mean, Jimmy was strong-willed. He's a, a tough guy, he, you know, in his day. And I, I think eventually I would have seen it his way, whether he lived, you know. But yeah, that was the turning point where I just said, you know, I, I, I tried working. A buddy of mine owned a, a J&K, a spring shop. And I just, at that time, I couldn't even remember to take a shower and have soap, shampoo. And, you know, I'd be, I wouldn't even know the difference. You know, I couldn't remember to have a towel, soap and shampoo to take a shower was overwhelming. I couldn't put those things together. Right. Right. Because of what was going on at the time. Yeah. And, and, and I, sometimes the uh, generation like your father per se, he he had his perceptions of what maybe the reality should be. Well, without. back then, think about it. That was 35 years ago. Right. And so the level of knowledge they have today, which they still treat people the same way I was treated 35 years ago, yeah. you know, with handcuffs and padded rooms and people don't know anything about what goes on. And even the people that run the hospitals don't know what goes on in the mental health department. Sure. And I know that firsthand now, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, a uh, it was crazy. And there's, you know, that might be part of my micro niche is to, to bring this out to the public more, you know? Yes. And, uh, so my recovery really three weeks later, Todd Nelson Woody is a cement mason was having a job and needed some help. And the guy he was subcontracting for, you know, said this guy's a good worker. And, 
he said, you think he'd be interested in carpentry? And, you know, next thing I know, they put a hammer in my hand. I was like Thor, you know, <laughs> and just being the enthusiasm from having a life where you're a third grade reading level and you've got an IQ of 70. Now, all of a sudden you're functioning and they're paying you to work right. or, you know, more than likely I would have, I, I didn't, that wasn't my future, you know, but I kept envisioning this will pass and, you know, this little light of mine, somehow I'm going to recover and somehow things will come back to normal. Um, did you enjoy, did you enjoy it right from the outset of carpentry work, masonry work, carpentry work? It was mainly carpentry. You know, I did do concrete work as well. And, and, um, but I did, I enjoyed it. And uh, it just, I just seemed to be able to absorb it. Plus being able to, I think I learned things my whole life working with my hands, like I learned with my hands. And um, so whether it was auto mechanics or whatever, um, and then I took architectural drawings in that in high school. And I enjoyed that and did well with that. So it was just kind of a, a natural and then you know, reading blueprints, I started reading again, you know, to do that. And then all the mechanical drawings, when you're doing door closers and other things, I read real slow, but I was able to read those kind of things, you know, not like a science fiction book or something like that wasn't, but somehow I, I, you know, got back that way. And probably two years later, I ran a maybe yeah, two and a half years later, I ran like a million and a half dollar job for SKF uh, at a young age, you know, and, and the union, a friend of mine's family owned a union company and knew I did that. And they had bid the job and said, you know, why well, you come work for us join the union. So with three years carpentry experience, I got in as a journeyman, which is normally a four year and it just took off. And then I went from one contractor to another because a lot of the old time carpenters are even the cement masons would say, you know, you don't want to stay with the same company because they're always going to think you have the same level of abilities as when you started here. So when you go to a new company, they're going to look at you at a higher level. So I worked for a lot of different union companies, eventually building bridges um, up in Buffalo, Niagara Falls, locally here in Jamestown and uh, just decided, you know, and then one day I, I just had the idea of building a bar. I had built a couple of bars early on, Pale Joey's and then Moonbook Country Club. So I always had that bug. And I asked Pale Joey, who's passed on now, um, he was starting fresh and just gave me the details of using a credit card and building credit, buy a pair of jeans, pay it off. And that's how he eventually was able to get the credit to open a bar. Okay. So, so six years after we built that bar, I took his advice. I built my credit up and, you know, I had a boat and a truck and li lived with my parents on and off in between girlfriends, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I sold my boat, my truck and that moved back with my parents and then wound up having testicular cancer, you know, and that's where we started this story. But that's right. what prepared me for cancer because, um, looking back at what happened, I mean, that was a bad experience and it's how do you get through it? And I'm a quote guy and I always thought this was an original quote, but I realized everything's been said before. And I remember I had gotten a speeding ticket and I was in with an attorney and I told him what happened to me in Texas and that I should be able to sue for that. I lost my business. I lost everything. 
And this attorney, he's passed on now too, was Rob Levers. And he was maybe five years older than me. He was young back then. You know, I was maybe 22 when I got my speeding ticket. He might've been 27. And he said, Kurt, this could take five or 10 years to sue the system. And you may win or you may not, but do you want to put your full life on hold to go through with this lawsuit? Mm-hmm. He goes, you're a young kid. You're going to live this nightmare every day. Is it really worth it to you to go after money? Or do you want to live life and enjoy things now? Or do you want to put it off to five or 10 years, hoping you're going to get this cash reward of suing them for, you know, so I kind of put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. And I look back at that. And even before that moment, I just said, you know, it's a bad experience. And I realized the only bad experience in life is the one you didn't learn from. Right. You know, no matter how dire, how deep, how dark, if you can find some meaning in something, it just brings a little light into the shell of the ego Mm -hmm. and you can kind of move forward from it, you know? Right. And is it fair to say that some of these experiences that you've had, as challenging as they may have been, that that can can or has put you on a path to be helpful to some other folks that are going through challenging times. Yeah, you know, and honestly, I mean, I've spent a lot of time uh, researching and understanding whether it's cancer and even mental health is um, that it, it, they kind of call it like uh, the wounded healer, you know, it's rewarding if you can assist someone from not having to go through the depths that you went through in your suffering right. and pain. And, and unfortunately we, we just seem to learn or awaken through pain and suffering, you know, and, and yeah. it, it awakens you to a fuller life, but it really sucks going through it. Precisely. <laughs> Fortunately, there's an end to the tunnel, which you have experienced personally. Because yeah. the tunnel's pretty long. Yeah. So, so you, you know, when I did get cancer, I what happened to me at Texas? That was such an overwhelming experience. And even if I took their advice and I didn't lose Jimmy, I mean, I I would be in a mental institution right now. And I always have a, a soft spot for homeless because if I didn't have loving parents that came down right. and literally escaped me out of this, my mom always comments that. She, I was behind six major sets of locked doors to get to me in this Terrell State Hospital. Wow, six. six. Yeah, and she'll even say that today if it comes up. You know, my right. mom's 85, 86. Her memory's not, you know, fully there. Right. But she just, that's her first memory. And her second one was she didn't recognize me. I look like a World War II POW. Because of the, what had happened with you. Yeah, so weight. much weight loss. She did, she did, wasn't sure if it was me or not. 111 pounds. Yeah, wow. from 165. Right. Wow. And that's all in five weeks. I don't. When I got to Terrell, Texas, I don't remember eating, and I remember the whole experience, but I don't remember having food. I remember once going into. They had like this little room where um, they did arts and crafts, and that I was never allowed in there. But I remember I saw sugar packs in there and I ran in trying to at least get sugar to eat, you know, Yeah. and, and they chased me down and chased me out of that room. But um, a, a, a challenging experience, to say the least, but it helped. Yeah. Helps so, I mean, not to make light of cancer, but what I went through there 
you know, and the other thing, I wasn't afraid to die. It was a weird thing. Cause I mean, I, I came to terms with that, even losing my best friend, Jimmy, and knowing that if God wanted me, I just literally said, God, if you want me, take me, but right. I'm, I'm not going to live this way. And um, so when it came to cancer, I mean, if, if I had it now, it would be a totally different response. I've got kids. I've got so much to live for at 29. Naively. It's like, man, I've lived a life. I drive my motorcycle. I lived in Texas you know, I've already lived a full life. Well, now I'm 56. And it's like, you know, you'd have to take me kicking and screaming, you know, Precisely. back then it wasn't that big a deal to me. Right. Because well, if I die, I die, you know, but now, and, and you don't realize that how hard it was on those around you. You know what I mean? And that it was really hard on my parents. Because I, I didn't want to I saw because Jimmy, I watched him die, you know, Right. And it was all with the radiation, the chemo. And, and I'm like, I told him I didn't want to do chemo. I'd rather do alternative. And when you first get cancer, you know, everyone starts showing, oh, you got to do a microbiotic diet. You got to do this, you know. And then there was a Brzezinski that was in Texas that was Dr. just. Dr. Dr. Brzezinski. Sure. Yeah. I'm familiar. There was, a, there was a guy that worked at our um, landfill that had like two months to live and he's alive three or four years after by going to Dr. Brzezinski in Houston, Texas, if I recall. Yeah. Yep. yep. So a friend of mine told me about him. I met with a guy and he was living with a bag on him and whatnot, but he, he was still alive and working. And when they shut him down and he couldn't get his medication, I think he eventually passed away. But, but my mom and dad, my dad was like a physical therapist, anything over the white coat, they all get the same education, mm -hmm. his mentality. Right. And um, so when they heard I might not do chemo, it was a death sentence if I didn't. And I didn't realize how aggressive this cancer was. And, you know, I was almost trying to not do it. And I just remember the panic on my mom's face that, you know, if he doesn't do it, it's a death sentence. So when you're stuck in that short period of time, eventually I came around and uh, Dr. Walter, who did my surgery, the urologist, really said, Kurt, you know, you, if you don't do chemo, you know, you're, you're not going to make it. It's just not. And he was right. Looking back and he, we became friends. He was only, I was his first left orchidectomy or whatever they call it. Okay. He did on his own. You know what I mean? Yes. And he'd had experience before, obviously. And I just figured he was young and be more gentle. And, and we became friends. He's from Buffalo and he's retired now from urology, but um, we became friends and he'll even to this day say, you know, Kurt, I didn't save your life. You know, the chemotherapy did if you had the surgery, but if you didn't, but it's still, you know, it's looking back, you know, you, there's a lot to everything, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I just, you know, and then they wanted me to sperm bank and my poor mom's there. And I'm like, you know, I don't want a sperm bank. I'm messing with mother nature enough, yeah. you know, and my mom and there, there's two other doctors or three at Roswell park around us. And my mom puts her fist on the table and says, well, who's going to carry on the family name? Cause I'm a, you know, I'm the only boy. 
And I'm like, mom, Johnson, it'll be around for a while. (laughs) Office kind of laughed and joked, but I never did sperm bank. And fortunately I was still able to have kids. Right. Which is, which is obviously a great thing. And as you said, life has ways of changing from when we're single with a little bit more carefree to now we have a wife and we have two children and there's a lot to live for. No question about it. And it, it appears you've had a couple, I'll call them mentors along the way. The, the guy in Texas that was helpful to you, uh, the Marlboro man. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the doctor who's retired now who said, Kurt, you're just basically not going to live unless you do the chemo. And right. it's kind of putting it right where it was. And, and yeah. you know, and it helped. Decisions have to be made. But I think that those people helped you make decisions on those particular issues. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, I, there, there could be other treatments, but when you're in the situation, you don't have the time to research right? and then fear sets in and you're not always coherent when you get fearful, it's hard to make good decisions. So yeah, it was fortunate that I'm still here and, and I listened to the advice people had given to me. Absolutely. And we didn't have, we didn't have Google back in those days to pull stuff so instantaneously. Yeah. And, I and, didn't understand so now you went through the process health-wise, really yeah. a couple of different areas, and it was and, and definitely quite serious. And yeah. there's nothing like being a parent, as you know now, your mom is always going to be your mom and you'll always be her only son. Yeah. And, you know, so that that makes complete sense. So you're you're doing your work, you're getting involved uh, in a couple bars, if you will, from a construction standpoint, but then you choose to op- open up your own bar. And while you were, when you opened in 95, did you continue to work at carpentry for X amount of years or how did, how did that process take place? Well, three weeks before I opened the, or two weeks before I opened the bar was my last chemo treatment. So when I first opened physically, I couldn't bartend anyway, you know what I mean? But I had to get the bar open to, to make ends meet, you know what I mean? And I was a, I think six or eight weeks behind the schedule I had set to open. So when I first opened, um, I didn't, I couldn't work, you know, as a carpenter and believe it or not with my story. And, and there had been a bar, the grog shop where I used to hang out. That's why I wanted to open a bar. That was my favorite hangout. We always went there after work and, um, missed all those guys. So that's part of the motivation for opening my own bars because I didn't have those, you know, a place for all us to gather. And so when I did open Shawbucks, I mean, it, it started off the ground running, mm. you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it just took right off. And I was fortunate to get the right, you know, I had friends help me open it, you know, coming down the stretch, right. um, two or three weeks before all my, a lot of my friends showed up and a lot of them knew how to bartend and they set the bar up, even though I designed everything myself and built the physical structure, they knew how to set up the bar where the liquor bottles should go. And they really helped me through the whole thing, you know, and I had a few friends help me build it, you know, that would come in and help out. So yeah, when the bar opened, um, I was just mainly uh, uh, just there for, for, uh, to make sure everything's running smooth, you know what I mean? And, and open the kitchen. And I never went back to, uh, 
a carpentry job other than my own or my remodel jobs or fix ups. And that's what I was curious about. So you, you yeah. didn't, you stayed doing, as you said, with the bar, with the bar and yeah. then became the restaurant as well over time. Yeah. So I, I learned how to do the office work and the payroll and the, you know, I did all that myself, learned it. And, um, and then like seven, eight months after I was open, the building next door, because I didn't own this one. It was with Downtown Development Agency. Okay. And their goal was to develop this area. So if the building ever came up for redevelopment, my lease became null. So I didn't own that building. But the building next to it came up for auction uh, December of 1995. Mm -hmm. And I had made enough money to, to pay off my debt that took me to start that quick. And I had enough money to uh, put the possible down payment, whatever the building would sell for. And I talked to a buddy of mine, Marv Schuver. He was, well, he's my best friend's father. And Marv and I were good friends, even though he was like 25 years older than me, he was kind of my mentor. Mm -hmm. And he tried to discourage me from opening a bar thinking I would just drink too much and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he gave me business advice because he was a self-employed business. He had like 10 different businesses and one, you know, yep. and it very successful. And he never helped me out financially, but once I proved him, I could do it. And I, I wasn't going to be a drunken screw up. I asked him, I said, well, this auction is coming up and um, it has to close 12 days after the auction. So, I mean, I might need a bridge loan or something to, you know, cause I, I want to own a building here. I'm successful here. You know, what do I do? And he says, yeah, sure. He goes, uh, we'll, we'll go to the auction. We'll bridge loan it. I think you can get this. So wind up going to the auction. I had enough to put the 10% down and, and Marv went with me to the auction and um, I got awarded the building and um, that's how I'm in the building I am now. Mm -hmm. Had I not bought this, I don't know if I, you know. Right. Got it. gave you a nice situation. Yeah. Instead of paying, rent, the, paying a mortgage down. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, the story, yeah, speaking of mentors, so I would always go on my motorcycle. My whole life's revolved about going for a ride and figure things out. There's just something and I'd only been in business for a year, but now I had to decide, now I got this big 16, 20,000 square foot building, you know, now what am I going to do with it? Am I going to add on and open a nightclub? What, what am I going to do? So I decided to go for a motorcycle ride. I stay at this, uh, down in West Virginia. Um, it was this big days in on the hill. I just happened to make it that far and it started snowing. You know, I figured the further south I'd get it warm up. So right. I stay at this hotel and and I was going to go down to my sister lived in uh, North Carolina. And I figured I'd stop and visit them and see some friends down that way and, and come back with an answer of what I should do. So staying in the hotel, it says Skidmore Development on the phone. And I thought, man, that'd be cool to meet a guy like that. And I could talk and ask him questions. And um, so I went down there. I spent... I was only supposed to be gone like six or seven days and now snow was happening up here and I'm on my bike and I can't get back to New York. So I stayed an extra 10, probably an extra five days. So on the way back, it starts snow again. I wanted to make it to that hotel because I had such a nice day and it was, the dinner was good. They just opened a brand new restaurant. Uh oh, 
Oh no. Oh no, I lost you. Can you hear me? Oh yeah. Yeah. Something. I, something clicked out. Oh, there. I'm sorry. Okay, we're so, good. Yeah. So I'm on the way back, and I get the. It starts snowing again on the way back, and the next thing I know, it's. Uh, I get the last room in the hotel, the handicap room. I make it down for dinner, and this guy turns around and and looked like a real prominent businessman, and he he said. Uh, are you enjoying your stay? And I said, yeah, I loved it so much. I made sure I stopped on the way down. He goes, oh, I love to hear that. He says, you're the guy on the, the motorcycle. And I said, yeah. And he wound up, he says, you know, you, you mind if I sit with you? My name's John Skidmore. I own the hotel. Ah. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> so I start telling him my story and my conflicts with the city and some of these other things we had going on. And I told him and his wife had just died of cancer. So I shared my story with him that helped him. And then he shared his story with me yep. and he was building, a, he owned a, a plywood factory and he had started out somewhere up by Chicago or Detroit as a tool maker. And one job led to another and he moved back to West Virginia on the interstate of, and um, developed all four corners of the exit. Mm -hmm. um, in Summit, Sutton, West Virginia, I think. Right. And uh, so anyway, it was just a cool incident. And he said, you know what, just go build it, develop it, you know, do that. That way you own it. If the eminent domain, anything, at least you can have that property. Right. And so that was just a, one of those connections. I knew I met the guy that was going to talk to me and we, we talked for two or three hours and then I went to the bar after and they wouldn't let me buy a drink. They said, no, John Skidmore wanted to get whatever you wanted. And we all, you know, and I met a lot of the locals, spent, stayed there and everyone I met uh, really looked up to this John Skidmore and he was a nice guy and really helped a lot of people out. Right. And um, so I got my answer. I came back and I tore in and, and added on into the the building I'm in now, mm -hmm. build a nightclub. I called it Mactic Jacks. Yep. A, a friend of mine, uh, Jack Manella, was uh, the one that got me in the Carpenters Union. He was a year or two behind me in high school, but we always used to call each other Mactatical, Mactissimo. And when we were at Moonbrook Country Club, I was talking about opening a bar. And I told Jack, I said, Jack, I, you know, I kept talking about the bar. He goes, well, what are you going to call this fine establishment? So I'm going to call it Mactic Jack's Boxing Out Back. Because Jack was this big kid, six foot two, and always the biggest guy in the bar. And the smallest guy in the bar always wanted to fight Jack. So I said, you know, if you're going to run your mouth, you're going to put gloves on, go out back and put up or shut up. And that was just our joke. Sure. Mactic Jack's Boxing Out Back. So yep. then when I did go into the building, what are you going to call it? Well, I got to call it Mactic Jack's, you know? Yes, which you did. Yeah. Yeah. So we had two bars, one location. Right. And I didn't want to. Yeah. So it was just, and I started doing bands in 96 and, um, and then the ice arena came around and, and it's a twin pad arena. It's gorgeous. 
And, but the footprint of it was so big, they had to tear out a row of buildings. So the original Shawbucks building was now where Lafayette street got moved over to as, uh, is there. And, and they left the, uh, the journal press building. That's the Shawbucks building now, mm-hmm. which Mactic Jacks was there. Was there. So you've, you've put the two together, so to speak. Yeah. Consolidation. So would you say your business over the years, notwithstanding this last year, but your business has been steady or pretty much growing every year? No, I would say like the first, I'd say up until 2008, that yep. was just, uh, everywhere I turned, there was money coming in. Everything was great, successful. And then when the stock market crashed in 08, everyone, you know, like in 2001, everyone came together. Right. When 9-11 happened. Right. And so the bar was busy and everyone socializing, wanted to talk. Everyone came together. It brought the country together and people wanted to go out and be with people. Mm-hmm. 2008, when they crashed the stock market, you know, the banks did and the whole system collapsed. So um, people got nervous. They started saving and hoarding their money. So it was a, a difficult time. And I mean, we were still profitable, but I just, man, I, I had this idea that, you know, I, if I got into more food than just chicken wings, you know what I mean? Where it was more of a destination and had more of a restaurant that would work. And I really had this idea of doing more of a mindful eatery where mindfulness and I was studying different people learning about my cancers, you know, so it wouldn't repeat. Mm -hmm. I knew that, uh, the cure to cancer, mental health and all diseases preceded the disease. I'd come to that awareness. So like at the age of 40, um, I actually at at the age of 40, I had a relapse of what happened at 20 and, and I literally discovered what happened there was I had went on the Atkins diet and I was trying to lose weight. So instead of captain and Coke, I was drinking captain and diet and a lot of it. Right. Drink Coke all day. So I'm drinking that coincidentally, um, 10 years later or less than that, when I had opened the restaurant in 2012, 2013, a friend of mine that likes to interview interviewed this guy called, uh, and it was the doctor, Dr. Ralph Walton. You can find it on YouTube. They call him the aspartame guy. And he was the doctor I saw in Jamestown when I first come back from Texas. So Greg Peterson, he likes to interview people. And we have the Robert H. Jackson centers located here. And he was a founder, co-founder of the Robert H. Jackson center. He's the attorney that handled all the Nuremberg trials and that Mm -hmm. after world war II. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so Greg goes to Chautauqua Institution and he interviews people of interest. Mm-hmm. Well, they closed Jones Hill down. Dr. Walton went to work at a university in Ohio. I don't remember the name, but he was still in psychiatry and he passionate about understanding human behavior. And he came across a case where a pilot at the age of 40 had a mania mania episode, you know, where they got elevated and didn't sleep and whatnot. And through his research with a chemist, they discovered that um, aspartame was the cause of it. And they had a way to test and retest. And they identified that 
yeah, that caused a mania. So 60 Minutes wanted to do the interview and he was with Mike Wallace and he spent a day in interviewing and all this stuff was going to happen. Well, all of a sudden the pharmaceutical companies, because they own the patent, wanted to shut down the interview. Hmm. And so they flipped the whole interview. He was going to be pe- featured and they centered it on the brain tumors that aren't, aren't benign, but they take over your whole brain hmm. or they're benign. They're not cancerous. And they, and so they contributed that to aspartame. And so this other woman dominated the whole interview. And so I'm sitting there watching Greg Peterson do this interview in Chautauqua. And I realized, oh my God, this is the psychiatrist I saw when I was 20 years old coming back in a basket case. And now he's talking about aspartame. And Greg says, well, you know, what, where's your, he mentioned that they blew up the laboratory of the guy that he was working with on the aspartame. Uh They never went after Dr. Walton for this. And all you had to do is YouTube, you know, Dr. Walton aspartame. And this interview comes up. It's an hour long. I highly recommend it. Uh So towards the end of the interview, Greg Peterson asked him, you know, well, what, where's he now? What's he up to? And he said, well, he moved to Australia because they blew his house up. That's how pissed off whoever it was. I don't, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anything, but I mean, it just, it doesn't, it's more than coincidental. And, and it was amazing how the people that fund the paid programming control what goes on the program. You know, it's, it's, and it's going on now, just like it was bad. And this goes back to 1993 that all this case, and even in the interview, it was maybe six or seven years ago, they flew him to uh, speak in front of parliament about the dangers of aspartame. And so after that interview, I met with him and I I just wanted to learn more and learn more about myself, knew if he remembered me, you know, and we had lunch. And I just said that, you know, the, the effect of food can really have an effect on your mental psychology and there's different chemicals that could probably like aspartame. I said, you know, when I was 40, I had a similar experience to what happened to me at 20. And, um, and I bought into the system of, uh, again, they, they said, uh, they said that the, uh, uh, I had a chemical imbalance and I needed to take this the rest of my life. And I heard him mention, though, that, well, we can't test for it. So after three or four years of being on all these medications and struggling again, you know what I mean? Yep. I started looking and doing my own research. Well, that seems kind of like propaganda. You know, if you can't test for it, how can you tell someone there's a chemical imbalance? You know, and then I got through that one on my own. I quit medications again. I was on... uh, Lamictal, and I that's more addictive than heroin and more I mean it's like one of the most dangerous drugs out there on the planet Mm. and somehow I weaned myself off that little by little um, knowing the dangers but the side effects no one's ever tested it for the withdrawals if you get off the meds the withdrawals from getting off the meds give you symptoms 10 times as bad as before you were on them Mm So it's a, it's a really dangerous uh, crapshoot, you know, and they start you with this shotgun effect and 
you know, they, it's just unbelievable that this is just my opinion, but it seems like they get you sick with the food and then they sell you the solution with a pharmaceutical. Right. It's, uh, it's like, uh, it's like they're, uh, in a little bit of a, in bed together in some respects, you almost feel that way. And there's, there's been, I, I know what you're saying. There's some genetically made food, a company called Monsanto. There's oh yeah. Exceptions about some of the things that really do go on. And so I, I understand and, it. And it all affects your cells communication GMOs. Cause you, and it's your cells communicate with bacteria, with virus. I mean, the whole thing's connected right. and it just disrupts the whole system the same way that your cell phones do your mm -hmm. cell phones and the, the whole 5G. So it's just, it's a, uh, so I kind of asked him about that and he was honest and he goes, you know, I really believe like these colors, these dyes, that all this stuff that goes into our food unregulated is dangerous. And, and he's very outspoken about it now. Right. So I, he's someone I want to get an interview and, sure. and get a, a deeper questions with. Right. So Kurt, let me ask you a question. So, and I'm, I want to lead to where you just got to pertinent to from your own personal interviewing, but I want to ask you in your business now, let's say, let's go back in time when you were 40, you went through the second period again with the chemical alleged chemical imbalance. Um, does your, has your wife been involved in your business at all? Is, is she, uh, uh, or does she have a totally separate career? No, she's uh she would, she, well, she's a special ed teacher. So you, you can see how we get along so good. She understands me, right? but she loves the restaurant business. She used to bartend when, before we got married and after a little bit, um, she helps me out all the time. I mean, she's my rock. I talk to her a lot. And um, so, but you know, this, it was a learning curve for her too, when all that happened. And right. um she fully believed in the system until I finally uh, got through a lot of things and actually sought and found professionals that really knew a lot about uh, your thoughts precede your biology, you know, like your Bruce Lipton's, right. you know, and your diet of food precedes your mood. So this has been my vision to create this mindful eatery project within the upper floors of my building. Ah, um, right. Is, is so mindfulness is just the awareness within food of it gives you energy or takes it away. Right. You know, so, so it's just the awareness of energy and eatery means you're consuming three things, diet of food, thought, and environment. So this has so, been an accumulation in part through your own personal experiences of 25 years ago uh, and more right yeah, on up to date. 25 years ago. Yeah, right. 30, 20, what am I saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I look at, I look at uh, a diet of food, thought, and environment as like a three-legged bar stool. Mm -hmm. One representing food, thought, and environment. If one of those legs get weak, you're going to tip over. You know what I mean? Yes. And so what happened to me at 40 and at 20, I went three, three to five days without sleeping. And you will get a sense of psychosis. They do it with a military. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I have a, a business partner that actually was a medical scientist and, and worked with the military. And he just said, anytime you go that period of time, you know, 
Right. And that's how important sleep is. So if anyone's listening or has a family member that goes more than 24 hours without sleep, they really need to get them to sleep, you right. know, at all costs. It's important. And mm-hmm. but I, I, I'm not saying I didn't need help, but I never got the help I wanted at the age of 20 or 40 or the help I needed right. at 20 or 40. Yeah, precisely. So now you're in the restaurant business. You've had these helpful um, uh, experiences, if you will, personally. Now, along the way, you came up with an idea of potentially trying to expand your business or expand yourself or do something entirely different. And you read about or heard about this guy called Brian Rose. And you, oh, yeah. you, you got involved in a, in a, in a course curriculum uh, something about the business accelerator. Yeah. Now, so how, did, the, how did that come about? Why did you, why did you want to do that? Well, the business accelerator was mainly, um, he had on three of the people that I call my, they call them the three amigos, but the, I call them my, the three wise men, Bruce Lipton, Greg Braden, and Joe Dispenza. Okay. He had all three of them on in a row. And I love those guys. I, I really, find a lot of health and helpfulness in there. So I started watching Brian Rose. And when he had David Icke on, I heard about David Icke because I I knew that currencies and everything back in 2001, you know, with 9-11, I knew money was fake. I knew there was, it wasn't backed by anything. And I stumbled on David Icke maybe in 2008, you know, when I started learning how to use YouTube and listen to people. And I felt the guy was a little crazy, but you couldn't throw the baby away with a bathwater because 80% of what he was saying was pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. And so then when all of a sudden he gets banned from YouTube and they just started taking away his freedom of speech, whether he's right or wrong, right. I was like, you know, I want to do something. You know what I mean? This, this, you, you can't just start eliminating people for freedom of speech, whether you agree with what they're saying or not. You, you just don't eliminate them. Right. So I started paying attention to Brian and then I saw the broadcast yourself and, or the business accelerator. So my mind with business accelerator, I thought it was to accelerate businesses. And I'd been playing around with cryptocurrency doing really good. And I was thinking if I could get in and he had guests on with, you know, cryptos and, I thought that, you know, maybe there's a way I could fund this mindful eatery project if I joined Business Accelerator, you know, and I could turn a a cryptocurrency into something you could actually see. Mm -hmm. Because after 2009, I I looked at the way I handled investments and I was investing in things that my money was being used against me. You know what I mean? Uh, a, ch- a strange chain of events. What are the odds of this? My, I sold all, I did real good on a stock. I made a thousand percent. And after 08, I waited, it came back. I sold it. My financial advisor says, you got to invest in something you're going to lose out. And he goes, I know how you like to pick individual stocks. I mean, I had a gift for picking penny stocks and just going with my gut, believing in them and doing well. Mm-hmm. So my money was just sitting there. He says, you know, I got three stocks. They've done great over time. Coca-Cola, JP Morgan, and BP. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, I'm out golfing at Jackson Valley to the day. He calls and said, hey, Kurt, I got bad news. There's been a spill in the Gulf, British Petroleum. 
you know, and your stock just tanked. Right. It was a short time after that JP Morgan crashed. Mm -hmm. They got found out for their frauds and Coca-Cola went, had issues and almost went. So I had all this money and all of a sudden it's all worth in half. And I invested in things just for money. I didn't invest out of principle. Right. You know, so my lesson was, I don't, I've never lost money in anything I've done because I've always learned. You never lose anything when you learn, whether it's money, anything. That's just my attitude when it comes to investing. It sounds risky. It might scare people. But um, so I realized I didn't want my money held used against me. And and I I just decided I once everything recovered, I sold it all. And I, I decided in 2012 to reinvest and remodel my business into the you know, restaurant and go after the Shawbuck's press room, but I wanted to do it as the mindful eatery. Mm-hmm. And everyone talked me out of it because no one was into healthy eating in 2012. Not many. You right. know, I was ahead of the curve mm-hmm. and my wife didn't understand the name. She's not into the same things I am. And rightfully so, I didn't go organic and plant-based and healthy at, at that time, you know. Right. But so that's how I got into the business accelerator. I started thinking, well, you know, with these cryptos, man, you could actually have a business that actually has a core value. You could do it as a B corporation, which I don't know if you're familiar with a B corp. I'm familiar with the term. Yes. Yeah. So just for the list listener, uh, a B corp is a benefit corp with a triple bottom line. It's a people planet and profit. So there's a, triple bottom line, the triple P's. Mm-hmm. So my, my mind works. Well, what if you could invest in something like that, that is designated to be uh, focused on meeting the basic needs of the people on planet with the highest and great equal, greatest quality of information, services, and food. And that's my whole mindful eatery project. And now you're bound to these things. And what if you backed it with a cryptocurrency so you could have a million investors all investing $10 each uh-huh. into an idea that you could eventually franchise and grow it locally. So I didn't realize Business Accelerator was developing digital IP, you know, individual property and selling it, you know. Uh-huh. I thought it was where I could come up and meet business ideas and create, you know. So, but I wouldn't have never joined Business accelerator had I known it was just learning Facebook and you know different ways of of communicating and then you know selling a whether you come up with a product to sell or like a three video series to sell you know what I mean yeah but I learned a lot from it I don't regret it you know what I mean because I never would have got in the door with London Real and um, I realized that the course for me was the uh broadcast yourself so I could bring in the professionals and talk about the mindful eatery project. And I could literally, um, you know, bring in a finance guy that understands the cryptos, interview them and, and, and learn how to do it. I could bring in the guy that knows that the foundation of foods, the soil you grow it out of, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's the quality of the food. And it just meeting the basic needs with that, I could start with a podcast to bring the information into the, my neighborhood, my community, 
And it's always been a vision of a unity, a community center, you know, that people want to be connected. They don't want to be separated, mm-hmm. you know, and the more that you get separated through fear, the more the chaos and the troubles we see now, where if you had a business that was focused on bringing people together with the highest and greatest quality of information, products and services, you know, life coaching, counseling, you know, I'm the experiencer, I'm not the professional, but I'd like to hub the professionals in a location that other people could be the experiencer the way I have. So your, so you, so your goal is to create that, the eatery up on your floor above your restaurant. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say like at each level would be a different level of consciousness. You know what I mean? So the first floor could be a bar, restaurant, food. The second floor would be a gathering space where you could do workshops, trainings, lectures. You could do live broadcasts. You know what I mean? Like a live podcast. Right, right from there. With the National Comedy Center across the street, you know, maybe a comedian like a Joe Rogan might want to come in and rent my space to do his own podcast in Jamestown, New York, you right. know, and I could not even be the interviewer. I could let them use my my studio or my live audience. And so it just seems like there's a lot of different ways you could network this idea. Mm-hmm. And then the third floor would be like uh, a Velmar's business. And we've already talked plenitude. He's already doing what I want to do with uh live blood testing to test the, you know, your, your blood levels. And then they have coaches that it's all based on energy and his business is exactly what I'm envisioning, but he's in South Africa. Right. So hopefully I could, I need an elevator. There's a lot of things that need to come together, but it would be cool to partner with him because it's working in South Africa. You know, he's, his visions are very identical to mine and we live worlds apart. I mean, and he's, and he's implementing some of it and he's doing it and he's working with doctors and they've, they're actually doing it and, and successfully and they're reversing diabetes. There are all kinds of chronic illnesses by just understanding the way you were raised because that has an influence on your stress levels, you know, cause stress, you know, creates a high blood, you know, it creates a lot of different things. It absolutely and, does. And food and everything plays a role in it. So they look at the whole person, what's not, not just what's going on outside their life, but what's going on in their life mm-hmm. is affecting their overall health. So the third floor would be for that. I have a, we used to live up here on the third floor. I got a pretty good size apartment. That's kind of my office where I'm sitting. This used to be our bedroom. Ah. So this is my new studio for now. Right. And um, so, you know, you could have offices up here. It would be life coaching, business coaching, um, regular, you know, licensed counselors and just professional people wanting to give back and share their life's experiences to assist people go beyond um, instead of just surviving, assisting them to thrive, you know? Right. So is your, is your vision then, inclusive of the second and third floor there, but that podcasting can allow you to really reach out and it can allow you to create a platform where you can, uh, let's say, get various professionals on that you could add to uh, your expansion of insight to your listening audience. Yeah. Yeah. And just start the hub there and then create the demand for, you know, I, 
I visualize it as a physical and a virtual location. Uh Like what we offer here, you can get virtually through Zoom or whatever types of classes we develop, you know, with these creative professionals, kind of like I'm not a bartender. I don't see myself as being the practitioner. I'm more of the patient, you know what I mean? But I I know these systems work and there's people that are passionate about, um, you know, treating and learning in in a new and different way and environment. Um, within the importance of food, thought, and environment, you know, that you need them all to work together to be mentally healthy, physically healthy, and, and the uh, cure for disease, cancer, heart disease, all that precedes a disease, mental health, it's all connected. What will it, as you envision it, as you visualize things, whether it's a year or two or three years out, how would you like to see things unfold to be able to create the reality that you're envisioning? I think it's uh, just, and I think it's already starting, you know what I mean? And it just seems every, I think everyone all of a sudden is ready. Anytime I make a phone call or a suggestion, you know, uh, the fire marshal shows up and he's all of a sudden with first time meeting him, he's also a organic chicken farmer. So these younger, these 30, you know, 30 to 40 year olds are already striving to, to be in this kind of an atmosphere, you know, and so he gets it. So he wants to support the idea. And then there's another person I talked to and, and they're into it. So I, I think it'll happen pretty quick over the next year that, you know, it, it, that uh, through podcasting and meeting different people that uh, we can start the process first, you know, by getting the information out and getting the best information and then the services will follow, you know, and, and the products will. So, Mm -hmm. um, and the crazy thing is we're already doing this in our community. I mean, we've got Amish that have been growing organic food forever, you know, with horse and buggies Yes. and all the services we have in the community are already here. We don't have to create anything new. We just have to have a hub they can work together through. Mm -hmm. So if they want to learn how to muscle or tapping, if they want to learn tapping as a relief mechanism, or if they want to learn how to do heart math breathing with a device to lower your blood pressure, you know, this could be a total learning center. There's at least eight techniques I use. If I'm not happy, happy is my compass. If I'm not happy, I can do things to realign with happy. Mm -hmm. So there's all these modalities between muscle testing, tapping, hypnotism, you know, that, that work and I've used them. And locally there's a more and more Reiki. And I mean, there's all kinds of uh, people that are already here doing it and they're using mindfulness in the school systems, working with special ed kids. And they understand that, um, what the foods they eat affects their behavior, you know, and they're, and we're, it's kind of common knowledge now more than it was 10 years ago. Right. But um, so it's connecting these services and then having the common goal where, you know, if your resource center or some other, even a, a high school, elementary school, you know, they could have a group of teachers come through and learn some of these practices they could bring back to the classroom so their kids are able to learn more and be in a, you know, if you're in the state of fear, you're not going to learn anything. Right. You know, and, and the, so 
that's kind of like a learning center. You know what I mean? A, right. a center for success. You know, there's capitalization that's necessary to be able to help fund the ideas, whether you do it personally or whether you have others that participate investing in your project. Um, yeah. Whatever way your goal is to culminate into creating this project. Right. And you know, on the, the rooftop, I'd like the elevator, the whole building's concrete, even the roof's concrete. If you, that's the roof right there. That's a concrete roof. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. So pretty structurally I'd sound. Like to, yeah. I'd love to have a rooftop garden that, you know, and, and get into where you could have experiential learning. Right. And we've got a whole lot of land around Jamestown. It's kind of rural. And even in the downtown, when they have to take down these old Dilepid houses, you know, you could get the the uh, people that live here to grow in these small vacant lots. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is on a one acre lot, which isn't very big, people can grow their own food enough to make 80 grand a year on organic food. On one acre? On one acre. There's systems and certain ways that you grow and it's a regenerative growth systems. Wow. I would not and have I've seen three different people that have been podcasting because I've researched podcasting right. are doing and demonstrating and going to farm after farm. And, and you're only working seven or eight months a year and you're making 80 grand a year. So I think with us, you know, we're kind of a deprived area because it was all furniture making and industrial things. And as more uh, computers and robots take over and there's less jobs and more mouths to feed, right. you know, you could develop entrepreneurs to grow food and, and uh, it doesn't cost a lot to get started, you know, and if you had programs in a community, you could take them to this rooftop garden and learn how to grow one of these one acre farms. And now you're self-employed. You're not relying on anyone else to right. when you're going to work, how you're going to work and what you're going to do. Creating a lifestyle for certain people. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure there's enough people out there that are unemployed that would be happy to make, even if it was 60 grand a year, that's a living wage, 40 grand a year. Right. You know, if I didn't have a family and kids, I could get by on almost nothing, you right. know, and, and grow. And, you know, so I envision that on the rooftop and we're called the Pearl city, uh, Jamestown, because mm -hmm. they used to take the ash from Asheville where they got all the lumber and they would, crimp it up into these little pearl looking things that you would burn okay. you know, way back when. So we're called the Pearl City. So I thought it'd be cool to have like a Pearl City garden on top of my roof of my building that would illuminate at night to look like a pearl, a blue pearl. Yeah, clever. And, then, and you could cool. have year round eating and dining. And if you're eating, you know, fresh food, fruits, vegetables, you could have plant a plate in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. You can maybe have the whole ecosystem from having fish and worms and everything and, and demonstrate how the system works so that kids know and generations can learn what we've unlearned over the last 50 years about food and health. <laughs> Absolutely. My curiosity is given that, speaking of kids, that you have a 15 and a 17 year old, uh, what is their perception? How do they see what you're doing are they involved in the restaurant at all? And what do they think about your goals for the uh, healthy eating? Yeah, well, they're not really into healthy eating. My wife's really not either. And, and I do okay myself, but I don't eat a perfectly good diet. But my son, Colin, um, 
we've been closed for a year, but when we reopen, he wants to start in the kitchen. He'd like to learn how I do the bookkeeping and he's got an interest in, in business, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Caden wants to be a, a physician assistant, my 15 year old, yep. That's his, but he's not really into organic eating and that. I think he likes the idea they make a hundred grand a year. I think that might be part of his motivation, but he likes the idea of that. So, um, and Colin, they have those games where you have farming games and that on, on the game stations and Colin still likes farming. He, he, he figured he'd have to work hard and maybe own a farm later Uh where, you know, maybe if this took off and he was running Shawbucks and that, you never know. He loves driving equipment, anything with a motor he's into. Mm-hmm. He races go-karts. Uh, he's got a motorcycle, likes to ride with me. And um, so you never know where this will go for them. I, I envision Colin would love being a farmer. I, I, I think he really would. Mm-hmm. But I'll let them go wherever they want. My wife and I really haven't said they had to go to college or they don't have to go to college. They can kind of, you know, learn their way. Um, right. And, no, I absolutely. There's, you know, there's personal choices. There are those years where people felt like they were required to go to college. And now, of course, we learn all of the student student loan crisis that's going on. And then the, yeah. people in the trades can do substantial um, with with not long training curves with very low educational costs. And yeah. so I think we're seeing some of the trades getting more attention. So your point is right on, Kurt. You know, my attitude was when I, when I got into the bar was to learn a trade, you know, so I tended windows, I learned that trade. But then when I got back here, I learned the trade of carpentry. And when I was building the bar, I just always figured I hung on to my motorcycle. That's the only thing I didn't sell. I sold my boat, my truck. Mm-hmm. I figured if I failed, at least I could ride out of town on my motorcycle. <laughs> and I'm a carpenter, I could get a trade started again anywhere, because once you have a trade, you have it for life. And even building a business is the same principles or food or anything. First, you need a foundation then you need walls. And the way you bid material to build a house is the same way you build bid material to build a drink. There's everything becomes connected and you can apply no matter what, you know, by knowing a trade or applying to any business, it'll apply into anything you do in life. Yeah. No, that's good. Practical advice. Yeah. And that's that. That's appealing, I'm sure, to many people. Uh, practical, practical advice, which is excellent. Good. You know, and I kind of think everyone, like in life, I I only planned on doing the bar ten or fifteen years. I thought if I could make enough money to buy a house, so I wouldn't have that debt, then I could maybe think of family. You know what I mean? Sure. And um, you know, it seems to me that, you know, the old school way of that you have to do this and now you got to do it the rest of your life. I, I think it's probably a wise choice to try to change careers every 10 years and not be so funneled into one place that you don't want to be just wasting your time, wishing your life away that, you know, and then waiting to retire and now you're too old to do anything. Well, it's true, and it, and and it, as you and as I'm sure you know, when you find things that you love to do, it makes things a whole lot simpler, right? When it's yeah. personally enjoyable and it's not frustrating, and, and it doesn't become a job. You know yeah, what I mean? I do. 
yeah, you, exactly. You just kind of go through it with a, with almost like with a smile. There's a personal enjoyment, yeah. satisfaction, and not a regret that I've got to sludge to my job every day. So very, very yeah. true. So good. So let me ask um, the podcasting. You obviously you plan to grow that with ways and such that that we have been uh, dealing with. And you will be attracting people to your site, people you know, and some people you don't know. And your goal is, again, really, it's multifold here. Grow your podcasting audience in conjunction with the first floor is existing, operating, but the second and third floor still have those abilities to create what your visions are, which is is superb. Because it's really, you're all about helping people. You're helping people in multiple ways, some of the ways they don't even know because they don't understand right. some of those categories. So I think it's great. And it's and it's not really selfless. It's kind of selfish because I get the reward of assisting. You know what I mean? It, it, it makes me feel good that my life had a purpose that, yeah, I did suffer, but it can assist someone to suffer less and yep. to have an answer when all of a sudden you get the, the cancer diagnosis or you have a friend or relative going through mental health issues. There might be a holistic psychiatrist here. There might be a holistic psychologist that you could send someone to eventually. It'd be nice to have, you know, not just this building, but have other buildings that could be more of a transformational center for people that are going through a change point. Sure. You know, that's, yeah. And that, as you said, and that's the name of what you've, that, that you yeah. have taken the change. And go to, the, go to the source, get the food right. that was grown in the right soil, get the thoughts are the soil of the mind, get the right soil in the mind and um, do things that connect us, not separate us, you know? Absolutely. No, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. You're, you're well-grounded and well-versed in the fields that you have personally experienced. And, yeah. and it appears, thank God for the motorcycle to help get clarity of thought. I know it's almost killed me a few times, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) that same old story, but it's made you stronger, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Yes. One way or another, for sure. Well, I tell you what, Kurt, I think this has been fantastic. I'm sure we could go on for however long because the whole subject is really the root of what everybody exists under. Everybody eats food. Everybody has health. Either they have positive health or, or issues. So it right. really has an effect on, on, on the world, on every particular one. Let me ask, um, could you share with, if you would, on how you can get connected up or how people can reach you? Your, yeah, your you can. Info? Um, my podcast is ChangePoint, and you can find that on anywhere. Just type in ChangePoint. My name's Kurt B. Johnson, but ChangePoint should come up on any podcast. Um, Shawbucks Inc. If you want to learn about Shawbucks in Jamestown, New York, you know, you can go to Shawbucks Inc. and get other links. Facebook, Kurt B. Johnson, you can get a hold of me that way, Messenger. And um, I don't have a, a Kurt B. Johnson website up and running, but I do have the domain name. So as we're doing this, I'll eventually get a website. And, uh, and on the uh, Anchor uh, um, you can message me, uh, voice message me on uh, the anchor change point. Okay, very good. Excellent. Well, I, I want to thank you, Kurt. I've, I've very much enjoyed. 
I, I feel as though I've lived some of your, pretty much of your, your deepest life stories here. And I yeah. think that, I think it, you were sharing, I think some things that you probably don't necessarily talk about every day. Um, no, right. No, but I, I, I want to be authentic and I want to be true. And I want this to have a foundation on authenticity, you know? Yep. It's not easy to talk about what so many, so many times, even the doctor I saw at 40, looked up to me as a business owner and entrepreneur because Shawbucks has been here so long. Mm -hmm. And his advice to me was, well, don't tell anyone about this because, you know, it's not good for your business if people hear this. <laughs> oh, you mean because of what you were going through? Yeah. Yeah. The, the life crisis I went through at, at 40. And, um, and I took his advice to begin with, but then the more I realized how the system was like the upside down uh, meatloaf. Yes. <laughs> you know, like we started with. Right. You got to turn it back over. Um, it's time to start talking about how the systems work and how the system works for you and how it's working against you, you know? Well, for sure. And clearly, if you went through it, you went through at 20 and then at 40. God knows we don't want that to happen when you turn 60. Right? I know that's only four years away. <laughs> right. But the element is that you've discovered a lot of thoughts that can help is helping to reverse situations yeah. per se. And again, opening up information um, to those folks that are in touch with you is, is fantastic because you've experienced yeah. it personally and there's nothing like when you've been through it yourself, nothing. You know, it's right. easy to talk, but talk is a lot better when you've had the personal thoughts, feelings, convictions, and experience of going through it. Yeah, because it, it, it's hard to talk about something that, you know, someone can't always understand what you've experienced if they hadn't too, but if they've been close to it, they can pick up on it. Out of doubt. No, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Kurt, thank you kindly. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. And um, I, I look forward to seeing more of your work at uh, on the broadcast yourself. Absolutely. Likewise, the same way. And we will again talk soon. Thank you kindly. Right. Thank you, Jim. Have a great yes, day. You too.